What a beautiful service we've had so far. Love the, the personal family aspects that we have here. And it's going to run a little bit longer, but uh, no worries. Lunch is downstairs. Pray for the, the nursery workers. Buy them like a Starbucks or something to thank them for their efforts. Uh, they are working hard. So, uh, But we're thankful for them, thankful for that you're here. So let's pray and dig into God's word for a bit. Father, we come before you, thankful that we are your people. We, we come, and, and we come as debtors to your mercy. We come not deserving to come before you boldly, but we come in Christ. And we stand clothed with the righteousness of Christ, bought by his precious blood. But we do not deserve to be anywhere near your presence. We are unclean. We deserve to be cast out into outer darkness. And yet, in your mercy and grace and kindness in Christ, you have taken us who were once far off and brought us near. So we come here near you. Thank you that we can stand. Thank you that Christ's death has covered over and destroyed our uncleanness, our sinfulness, our wickedness. That you do not need to destroy us. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would give us insight and wisdom Lord, help us just stay awake, as a number of us are tired after a long and fun week. We pray you would give us the gift of staying awake, that we may be able to focus our attention on your word and learn from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. How is Leviticus going for you so far? Leviticus isn't usually the top five favorite books of most people doesn't make it on the top ten list even. And yet I have found it's been a lot of fun going through the book of Leviticus. Uh, typically, um, you know, I think that's one of the advantages of this kind of preaching that we do where we work through a whole book at a time. You see, if I just picked my favorite topics, I probably wouldn't pick some of the topics that are in these passages that we're covering this week. If I did, you might think I'm kind of strange. Uh, but um, because we're just going to go through the book, I've got to deal with them. I've got to uh, talk about them. And that's going to force us into some interesting, different parts of God's Word. And I think that will be beneficial for us. So uh, we're going to look at the largest section in our study of Leviticus. That is chapters 11 through 22. Now, we are going to ignore chapters 16 and 17 because they're about the Day of Atonement. And we kind of already covered a lot of the sacrifices. Uh, But we're going to look at all the laws about what is clean and unclean. And because this section is so large, I obviously can't go into detail about a lot of these things. Some of you think, well, that's good, actually. But no, there's really interesting things in here that uh, I hope you will take the time to read it. Really, what I hope this message does is helps give you the tools to then go back into this section on your own and read it and understand it and benefit from it. Now, as I read through this section... Say a few introductory things first. As I read through this section, I noticed the reoccurrence of a number of words. And these words fell into two very distinct, very opposing categories. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you these two lists of different categories. I'm going to read the list slowly, and I want you to think about and how each word on the list relates or doesn't relate to you. How do you experience these words? Do you have experience with these words? And uh, then we're going to talk about these two categories for the rest of the sermon. The first list category 
Here it is. Clean. Covered. Accepted. Meaning uh, whole. Meaning complete. Purified. Holy. Sanctified. Love. Now the second category. Unclean. Again, these are words that appear over and over again in this passage. Unclean means dirty, naked, uncovered, cut off, detestable, defiled, impure, profane, contaminated, an abomination, vomited, that's in there multiple times, dead. Two very different groups of words, aren't they? Representing two very different categories. Did you hear some words on that list that described the world we live in? Probably things on both of those lists, right? What about words that describe how you feel about yourself? What about words that describe how you think other people feel about you? Did you hear in their words that describe how you feel you appear before God? Well, I think it's inevitable that in this world we live in, because of who we are, we uh, feel things. We, we come to experience some of that second list. Uh, unclean, defiled, cut off. Let me just read a few, a couple of examples. Or we might feel that way, kind of an escalating proportion. Maybe you might feel that way when you're in the grocery store with your young child and the child does something stupid and then all eyes are on you. And you wish there was a lever you could pull and trap door. You might feel a little bit like you're, you're, you're that, something's wrong with you. That's just a little thing. It gets worse when it's not your two-year-old acting up, but when it's your older son or daughter who ends up in jail or a drug dealer or pregnant or a prostitute. And then you look in the mirror and you see yourself differently because of what they've done. You feel things on the second list when you invest all your identity in something, in your job or your sport or your marriage, and then the thing fails and you feel like you have failed. You feel crushed and you feel cut off. You feel alone because that which was about you that made you belong is no longer true. So you feel like an outcast. Or maybe something has happened to you. You've been lied to. That ever happened? You've been yelled at. You've been uh, hurt. Sexual boundaries have been crossed. You've been abused. You've been violated. You feel defiled, contaminated, unclean. Now, as I said before in past sermons, Leviticus can seem like it's hard to get a handle on because the situations that it talks about, some of the situations we'll look at today, seem so totally distant from our own experience. And and they are in a lot of ways. However, if we look at the categories that describe these situations, we'll realize that maybe Leviticus applies a whole lot more than we think we do. See, these words seem a little bit too relevant, don't they? It's not unusual that I've sat down with people either in my office or in the pew after Sunday and they'll tell me they feel defiled. They'll use words from Leviticus to describe their own lives. I remember hearing a young girl talk about how sexual boundaries were crossed and then she said, quote, I have this icky feeling all over. It's these categories that we see here. Another way of describing the things on the second list is with the word shame. 
probably all experienced shame at some point. Ed Welch gives a great definition of his shame in his book, Shame Interrupted, which is a great book, by the way. I think we have some copies over there. Um, here's, here's his definition. You are disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human. You were associated with something less than human. And there are witnesses. We'll talk more about this later, but basically this. Shame is that feeling, like, Analogy for shame is that feeling you're, you're with a group of people you respect, and all of a sudden you realize there's a big booger hanging out of your nose. And you realize they all see it. You realize your fly is down, and, and everybody was there and saw it. But the deep sense of shame that we're, these examples describe is much worse in those situations because it can't be fixed by a tissue or adjusting your clothing. It's inside that is messed up, and inside that everybody sees The book of Leviticus is about these categories for clean and unclean. And it tells them what is clean and what is unclean so that people can separate themselves from all that is unclean so they can stay clean. Now we're going to look at the examples of of how the people are to do that in a second. But before I do that, I want to just zoom out a little bit more and see how the, the Bible as a whole gives rise to these categories of unclean and unclean. How, how is this in God's total revelation? Well, we have to realize that, God, that, that God's goal for creation is a sense of wholeness, a sense of completeness. All things are at rest. And that's what clean is when things are complete and put together. And God is always working toward that goal. So at first, creation was formless and void. And then God put everything in its proper place. And then he said, it is very good. And then God created man. And it was not good that man be alone. So God created a helper suitable for him. And he told Adam to cleave to her. They're joined together. They fit together in a wholeness, in a unity. That is that category of clean. And this wholeness, which God is working towards in the Bible, is what the Bible calls shalom. Peace. But it's broader than just peace. It means rest. It means the absence of strife. It is as everything ought to be. Shalom is that category of clean. But there's a problem. A huge problem. We've broken that shalom. We are shalom breakers. We've taken what God has joined together and we've rented asunder. And that's where that second list comes in. Because when we break God's shalom, when we break God's order, we become corrupted. We become defiled, impure, contaminated. As soon as we've done something against God's order, we are outside God's order and we're corrupted. We've acted as less than human. But you see, that's not the only category for this uncleanness. Because not only are we unclean when we've broken God's order, but so also are other people unclean because we've Broken God's order against them. That's where Ed Welch's definition comes in. We're degraded not only because we've acted less than human, but we've been treated as less than human. And the book of Leviticus powerfully demonstrates how this sense of uncleanness works because uncleanness spreads. We'll see the laws say that if you're unclean, if, well, if you're clean and you touch something unclean, you become unclean. Uncleanness spreads. It's contagious. Things go from clean to unclean. Something unclean comes in contact with something clean, and the clean doesn't make the unclean clean. No, the unclean makes the clean clean. That's how it works. And you might say, well, that's not fair. 
But the point is not whether it's fair. The point is that's how the world works. We know uncleanness is infectious. We know shame spreads. Some people would say if you feel that sense of dirty and, and dis- degraded and disgraced, well, just ignore it. Act as if it were not true. But that doesn't work. Because the person who's been violated, really something has been done wrong against them. There is a sense where something is wrong. The person who indulges in something they ought not to has become dirty. We can't live as if there isn't there. Leviticus is very realistic in about the effect of shame, the effect of uncleanness. Okay, so that was a long introduction. Introduction is over, and it's already past noon, but that's okay. Lunch is downstairs, and we'll make it through. It's not that much longer. But I want to spend a time now, just a few minutes, briefly going over some of these situations that would make one clean or unclean in the, book, in the Bible. So I have it divided into four categories, I think. First, someone is unclean when they break the cultural norm for food. Someone is unclean in the Bible when they break the cultural norm for food. Uh, this is Leviticus chapter 11, verse 2. And I'm just going to read a portion of this law so you can get the feeling, feel for what it says. I'm not going to read the whole thing. And you'll see why when I read it. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Then he lists things that don't fall in that category. The camel, because it chooses chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. The rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the list goes on and on and on. We get directions for the things unclean in the sea, the things unclean in the water, um, or in the air, rather. We get all the list. And now, what do we make of this? Well, in some cases, the animals that are unclean, it's kind of clear that they're, they're pretty dirty and it's not going to be good if you eat them. Uh, carcasses lying on the side of the road. You know, you, you know that you don't want to eat roadkill that's been there for a week and a half. It's probably not going to be good for you. That's, that's obvious in some cases why certain animals are unclean. But uh, other cases, it's not so clear. So why did God forbid certain animals from eating them? Well, to be honest, I'm really not sure. But let me give you what I think is the best scholarly guess in this. I think that there were no health benefits to certain of these animals that they could eat versus the ones they couldn't. But you see, and and many of you realize this more than others, every culture has foods that it considers acceptable and unacceptable, right? So I think what God is doing, I'll explain it this way. So um, we have a potluck downstairs. Suppose I brought two dishes and, and you came up and they looked good. You know, they, they baked kind of casserole things, golden brown on the top. And then you read the, uh, what was in them. And one dish was a roasted puppy, yellow lab. And another list was fried slugs. I think by look on your face, I'll probably take those dishes home with me. right? And if I did put a heaping serving of roasted puppy on my plate, um, probably, and I sat next to you, you probably would feel a little uncomfortable. See, every culture has norms for what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. And what's going on here is is God is defining what those cultural norms are for the people. God is defining what they should eat and what they shouldn't eat. And the point isn't so much 
this animal versus that animal. The point is, God is the one who has given them instructions. So that as these people throughout their daily life, what do you want to have for lunch today? Well, let's see, what's out there? As they make decisions about their food, they are conscious that they are doing this because they are God's people and God has a claim on their life and his claim extends to every area of their lives. I think that's what's going on with these regulations for food, clean or unclean. Second category that makes somebody unclean, when someone goes outside the boundaries for sexuality. Flip over to chapter 18. We could spend a long time talking about everything here in 18. If you read this chapter to your kids, you'll probably get a lot of questions. But that might not be a bad idea, because parents, you should be the one who's answering those questions for your kids. We're not going to do everything in this passage, but let me highlight a couple things. Chapter 18, verse 6. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Uncover nakedness means have some sort of sexual relationship. You see, the point is, God is the one who is ordering their sexual lives, too. He made sex as good, but it's good in a certain sphere. So God is putting boundaries, stiff boundaries, around that sphere, not because he's anti-sex, but he's pro-sex, and he wants it to exist in that proper sphere where it is good. He's, he's given that proper sphere is uh, married people in, with, with your spouse and not somebody else's spouse. Because Leviticus 20.10 says, You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You see that? Violating God's order for sexual life makes you unclean. God's plan is for a man and a woman to come together and to be faithful to each other exclusively. That's God's plan. It's in this same chapter that we get prohibitions against same-sex relationships. Chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both have committed an abomination. Again, the point is, it's breaking God's natural order. It's breaking God's plan for creation. Now, that verse is not so popular in today's culture, is it? And in some countries, merely reading that verse is considered hate speech. And that's really, really unfortunate because chapter 18 is right before chapter 19. Chapter 19 is where we get the greatest command of love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what is in chapter 19 and it's all connected to the same part. These laws were given out of love. And to, to enforce these laws, to insist on these laws, is a way of loving one's neighbor. See, if it's true that to take sexuality out of the sphere in which God has ordained it is to do harm, is to hurt somebody, then out of love, we want to insist on the right sphere for our sexuality. Well, I'd love to talk to you more about that if you want to afterwards. But we must continue. It's not just sexual deviation that makes one clean. Any deviation from God's natural order makes one unclean. The context for the laws of uncleanness, we read, we read chapter 19, verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. God has given rules that they must follow because he is their God. And any deviation from these rules is to break God's shalom 
and to make oneself unclean. That's what Adam and Eve experienced. God put them in a garden. He made them unashamed, naturally. And then they broke God's law. And immediately they felt naked and ashamed, unclean. They realized they were not fit to be in God's presence. And they were cast out of God's presence because they broke God's law. Now, to understand the book of Leviticus, you have to realize that not all uncleanness is necessarily sinful. A normal Israelite will become unclean because of various things that happen in his or her life. Not all uncleanness is necessarily there because of sin. However, all sinfulness is uncleanness. All breaking of God's law makes one a rebel in God's universe, makes one stand out against the good world that God created. Finally, anything that is associated with death is unclean. The ultimate breaking of God's shalom is death. See, God did not create people to die. God created people to live forever. Death is an unwelcome intruder in God's good world. Death comes because we violated God's law. And therefore, death is the ultimate uncleanness. And therefore, in the book of Leviticus, anything associated with death is unclean. Uh, chapter 5, verse 21 says that anyone touches a dead animal, he becomes unclean. Chapter 21 says that to touch a dead body, even to prepare it for burial, is to make one unclean. Leprosy is also unclean. And I think that's because there's something wrong with the body that is moving it closer to death. Also in this category, we get what people who read this book probably have the hardest time with. And that is in Leviticus 15, 19, it says that a woman is unclean in her menstrual period. And a woman is unclean after childbirth. By the way, I don't relish the idea of talking about these things from the pulpit. That wasn't like, oh boy, I'm going to study Leviticus and get to talk about this from the pulpit. So if it feels uncomfortable, yeah, it feels uncomfortable. But anyway, it's God's word and there's a point to it. So I'm committed to preaching whatever comes about. So that's why I'm preaching this, by the way. Um, but, but people might read that and think, why is there that rule in the Bible? It seems like it makes being a woman just inherently unclean. Well, there's actually something very kind about this that we'll talk about in a minute. minute. But I think immediately, the, the reason why it's associated with uncleanness is because it's loss of blood. And to lose blood is to move closer to death. And you think about it, you lose enough blood, you die. So, in their thinking, to lose some blood was to actually move closer to death. The Bible says life is in the blood, so to lose one's blood is to lose life. And therefore, in the Bible, anything associated with loss of blood or a discharge of any kind was unclean. And the point here is that God makes death unclean to instill in the very fabric of their culture that death is abnormal. It's not just a natural part of the circle of life. With all due respect to Steve Jobs, it's not what he said it is, a great invention of nature, the clearing of the way of the old to get ready for the new. It's not that. Death is an intruder into God's good world. Death is wrong. So, that was my overview of, of Leviticus chapters 11 to 22. Here are the things that are unclean. Here are the things that make people unclean. And this law is given for the purpose that the priest will teach the people what is clean and unclean so they can avoid what is uh, unclean and stay clean. Now, you might be thinking, I'm sure glad I'm not under that system. Even just trying to figure it all out is going to be difficult. And praise God, we're under the new covenant. We're not under that system. 
However, don't dismiss this system too quickly because there are several real advantages that, that one would have under this system, and we should apply those advantages to our lives. So let me give you three benefits of living under this system. I'm going to give you another thing that's not a benefit. We'll talk about that in a minute. But first, what if we lived under this system? What would be different that would be good? First, if we lived under this system, I think we'd have a greater appreciation for our bodies, and we would realize that our bodies have a place to play in God's shalom. And I think in today's world, the body is often minimized. We, what do we do? We we text all the time, right? We live in this virtual world where we don't give as much attention to people's actual bodies, being there with them. We, we abuse our bodies with drugs and alcohol and overeating. For many people, the body is not really valued. And then we also, in this culture, go to the other extreme and we idolize our bodies. We idolize the body of an athlete. The body has a value if it can make a touchdown or score a goal. Most predominantly, the body is viewed as a sexual object. Pornography is rampant. People look then at their own bodies and evaluate them based upon their sexual attractiveness. Our culture is really messed up in the understanding of the body. Either we diminish it or we idolize it. We do anything but understanding that it is a good gift from God to be part of his natural order. And if we we paid attention to these laws, I think we'd realize first that sex is good in its proper sphere, according to God's ordering. We'd appreciate the body for sex, but we wouldn't let that become the consuming focus of our lives. I think also, if we understood these rules, we would see the need for rest. I think church people especially need to appreciate this. Uh, Remember the thing about a woman being unclean in her menstrual cycle? I said that there was actually a kindness in that. See, here's what would happen. There would be uncleanness after childbirth and uncleanness in the, the menstrual cycle. And then the person would have, the woman would have to stay confined, stay indoors. And you might think, well, that's even worse. They're locking their women up. No, no, think about what it's doing. It's forcing them to rest. It's making it so their husband or employer can't say, you just had a baby. Get out in the field and work. It's making them rest. It's a kindness. God is understanding the limitations of our body, and he's telling us to get the rest we need. This is also be, uh, apparent in the law of the Sabbath. We didn't talk about that at all, but this talks about the Sabbath rules. And under the, we aren't under the Sabbath the same way that they were back then, but there is still a principle there that we should realize. Rest is good. And I think too often we can think that if we're busy and tired, it means we're being spiritual because obviously we're doing a lot of good things. I don't think God thinks that way. And sometimes we use busyness as really an excuse for why we're not doing the things we ought to do. I'm doing all these things over here. Certainly I'm pleasing God. Well, well, maybe not. Maybe he doesn't want you to do those things. Maybe he wants you to do just these few things and rest so you have the energy to do these few things. What can we learn about this as a church? Well, start with the the thing of rest. Let's let's be a church that doesn't have a culture where busyness is godliness. Let's be a church where we realize that we need to rest and that that's okay. And let's not be looking at each other thinking, well, they should be busy just like I am. We don't know what's going on in people's lives. We praise God for the people who are working hard and 
And we, we, we need people to work hard to keep the church going. But let's also value rest and not neglect our bodies to do it. Also, in this area of being good to the body, let's cultivate a culture as a church that hates pornography. The statistics on this one are staggering. It's, it's all over the internet. Exposure to it is at a very young age. And it consumes people's lives. It destroys marriage. Let's hate it. But let's love those who give themselves to it and love them and call them to a higher view of their body than they have. Let's be able to reach out to them and say, God has a much grander view of the body than you have. Won't you want to see it? So if we lived under this system, I think we'd appreciate the need for rest. I think we would have a better view of sexuality uh, with our bodies. I think if we also lived under this system, we would have a very strong awareness that God is holy. And God's holiness puts a claim on our lives for every area of our lives. I think that's what the food laws did back then. They couldn't open their refrigerator without thinking about who they were as God's people. They didn't have refrigerators back then, but I think you have a point, right? Some of you are thinking, wait, did they have refrigerators? We hear the refrain over and over again. You shall be holy as I am holy. God is holy. God is set apart. And he calls his people to be set apart too. That's the point. And the New Testament has a great value on the holiness of our bodies. Let me read you a few verses. Present your bodies as living sacrifices to God. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins are committed outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. For this reason, I'm sorry, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. The New Testament also tells us that our bodies are temples for the Holy Spirit. We would realize that God has a claim on our body, and we should be holy by honoring God with our body. Number three, if we were under this system, I think we would grieve over our lack of cleanliness, our lack of holiness. See, uncleanness in the Old Testament was serious business. If you were unclean, you couldn't go in the temple. You couldn't appear before God. And and if you did, you were in grave danger. And in many cases, uncleanness meant that you had to go outside the temple or not outside the temple, outside the city, outside the camp. You had to live far away. You couldn't be with the people. Uncleanness is serious business, and it's a picture of the fact that God is pure, and if you're going to be close to God, you've got to be pure. Uh, I remember in health class in high school, there was a picture hanging up on the, on the, uh, the wall, and it was this picture of a woman just coated in black soot, and underneath of it, it said, if smoking did to the outside of you what it does to the inside of you, this is what you would look like. And I think the book of Leviticus is saying, if, if sin did to, the, to your body what it does to your soul, this is what you would look like. And it presents sin in ugly terms, so that we would realize it's, it's not good. It presents sin as uncleanness, nakedness, detestable, cut off, defiled, contaminated, vomited. We would see sin as serious business, and we would hate the uncleanness in our hearts. James tells us, Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord. Friends, do you grieve over your uncleanness? 
Does your, does your sin before God, you're like, well, it's okay. I mean, it's better than others. Who really cares? Does sin before God make your skin crawl? Is God that holy that you don't want to be sinful in his presence? Isaiah saw the pure holiness of God and he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. Now, living under the law had great advantages. It gives us a high view of the body. It helps us see that God has a claim on our lives in all areas of our life. And it makes us grieve our lack of holiness. But there's one glaring weakness to the book of Leviticus. The law could not take what is unclean and make it clean. The law is given so that people can make a distinction between what is clean and unclean. But what if you're unclean? What if you're permanently unclean? There's no hope under the law. You're going to live outside the camp. You're going to live away from people. There's nothing you can do. You're stuck. According to the law, you can go from being clean to unclean. You can't go from being unclean to clean. You can't do anything that's going to take you there. According to the law. But enter Jesus. And it changes everything. Luke 17, one day Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. He's outside the city, which is where he's going to meet the people who are unclean. He sees ten lepers. And they say, have mercy on us. Have pity on us. And Jesus makes them clean. In Mark 1, there's a man with leprosy. And he's begging Jesus. If you are willing, make me clean. And Jesus stretches out his hands and touches him. Now, what should happen according to the law if if a man touches a leper? What happens with Jesus? Immediately, the leprosy was cleansed. In Mark 5, a woman has a flow of blood, and she's had the flow of blood for 12 years. So she's been unclean for 12 years and probably received little to no human contact for 12 years. And she, she knows there's something special about Jesus. So she says, if I could just touch the hem of his garments. She did. And immediately, the flow stopped, and she became clean. And then right after that incident, Jesus goes and finds a little girl who has died. And Jesus, dead body of the girl there, he picks up her hand. And what should happen to him then? If he touches a dead body. He should be unclean. What happens? He tells the little girl to get up. He makes her alive. You see, Jesus doesn't get infected by uncleanness. Jesus infects the uncleanness with his cleanness. What's the difference between Jesus and the law? Now, kids, this is on your children's bulletin, so listen up here, okay? The difference in the the law and Jesus is the law tells us what is clean and unclean. But Jesus makes us clean. And kids, you need to understand that just as much as your parents do. Because you guys can feel icky and unclean just as much as your parents do. And you need Jesus to take away your uncleanness. So how does he do this? How is Jesus able to do what nobody else could do? Well, the answer is by becoming unclean himself. Think about it. Jesus is stripped naked. Jesus is whipped to the point where blood is flowing and his skin is just barely hanging on. Jesus is then taken outside the camp. And Jesus dies a horrible death on the cross. And it appears for a time that uncleanness has won. It appears that uncleanness has swept in it the clean one, making him also unclean. But he doesn't stay dead. 
And the law of uncleanness works backwards. It's sort of like in the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan, the Christ figure, is killed by the White Witch. And the White Witch thinks she's won. But then the Aslan rises from the dead. He comes back to life. And now he is able to make alive everybody who he breathes on. And Aslan explains the situation. He says, Though the White Witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back to the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would work backwards. See, Jesus is the innocent, pure, clean victim who willingly comes and takes the unclean person's stead. And the law of uncleanness works backwards. That's why Jesus, like, unlike anyone else, could take what is unclean and make it clean. We said earlier that a person who has been abused or has done something wicked and, and wrong feels dirty. And the solution is not to tell the person, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Just act as if you were clean. You can't just neutralize those feelings. You can't make it as if it didn't really happen. However, you can come to Jesus. You can take your uncleanness to Jesus, and he can make you clean. Imagine you're one of the lepers. You see Jesus. Jesus, if you're willing. Jesus says, I am willing. Be clean. Receive Jesus by faith. And let him take and cover all your uncleanness, all your impurity. And let him give you his cleanness and his purity. Be assured that when you come to Jesus, your uncleanness will not make him unclean. Don't think, I can't possibly come to him. I'm so icky. I'm so broken. I'm so dirty. You can take whatever dirtiness you bring to him, and he can make it clean. And then, go out into the world without shame without any sense that there's something wrong, because Jesus has made you clean. And because Jesus has made you clean, you can go into the unclean parts of life. We read in the book of Acts, in chapter 10, Peter has a vision of all these insects that are on the unclean list. And God tells Peter to kill these insects and eat them. Peter's like, what? No, no, I can't do that. And God tells him that no, they're clean. Peter understands that that means he's supposed to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter is supposed to take the gospel into those places that would be considered unclean. And friends, we too need to go out into the world armed with the gospel of Jesus. And we need to announce that there is one who can make their uncleanness clean. Friends, think about how much better our job is than the priest. I wouldn't have wanted to be an Old Testament priest. Because all the Old Testament priests can do is they have to teach people about what is clean and what is unclean. And there was probably a lot of classes about this. You know, how to understand which, you know, this is the hoof and this is how it divides and this is okay, this is not okay. All they could do is teach people what the distinctions were and tell them, stay away from this. We can come. And we teach people that if you come to Jesus, he takes our uncleanness and he makes us clean. We teach people that Jesus will take what is naked, detestable, defiled, impure, profane, contaminated, an abomination, vomited, and dead. And he will make it clean, covered, accepted, whole, purified, sanctified, and loved. Friends, is there any better message than that? 
Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the one who loved what is unlovely and unlovable to make us clean, to make us pure before you. And thank you that you not only make us clean in your sight, but you do the work of sanctification by which you actually remake us more and more into the image of Christ, the pure one. Lord, we pray that you will be doing that work among us. Draw people who do not know about the cleansing power of Christ. Draw them to Christ, we pray. Let us continually stand by by his death that his blood will cleanse us. Let us not go far from the gospel because we continually need his cleansing. We continually need him to make us pure and clean before you. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.